Oh boy, would you open your Bibles to somewhere? You know what? Let's, I'll tell you where we'll go. Let's go to Psalm 2. I had a great sermon wrote, and then the Holy Spirit took over. And Let me just, by a showing of, just look in your eyes. How many of you, like, watch the news this week, and it's a little freaked, you're a little freaked out? Right? How many of you have had, the, the, you've had this thing? Man, what kind of a world did I bring my children into moment? You pregnant mamas, right? You're maybe feeling a little bit of the weight of that. And I was, I could just feel it. You could feel it. It was like a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and I was, I was watching these, the news and, and this, this passage came to my, to my mind and my heart this morning. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. That's not on the screen, by the way, Joe. Sorry, I didn't know. There's, there'll be no slides for that. God's asking, why, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And this gives me a great deal of peace this morning. Verse four. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and will terrify them in his fury. Saying, ask for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And he goes on to say, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. A messianic prophecy, speaking of Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage. And as the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Have you ever dropped your mom's favorite bowl or favorite plate and, and it just shattered. It was so easy. <laughs> it just went, I'll dash them like that. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you shall perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a great and open invitation for the leaders of ISIS and the leaders of the United States is Blessed are all who take refuge in him to, to pray in that. That invitation remains open from our Father to all the world right now. But there is coming a time when those who have rejected him, when those who have said, I'll not have you to be the Lord over me, those who have raged and imagined vain things, who would not come to Jesus and kiss the sun, so to speak, that he will open up a can of whoop God that it's coming. And in the meantime, between now and between then, our faith is what keeps us. The faith that God sees it all, that God knows everything, and that on the other side of eternity, we will not look at this and say, well, I appreciate everything you did, Jesus, but that whole thing in France, that whole thing, they're like, I don't understand. No, whatever, however he sets it right, we will look at him and say, Righteous and true are your judgments, O oh God. And if you're a teenager, all that is is Bible speak for high five, Jesus. That was awesome. Totally got that. That was great. You nailed it. 
We won't look at it and question it all because it will all make sense to us then. But the question is, what about now? What about now? What do we do? You might have noticed in your uh, Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds, there was a lot of advice for what we should be doing. Maybe you've offered some of that advice. We should do this or we should. My grandpa had, uh, he had his advice for pretty much any of the ills of society was really simple. Put them all on an island and blow them the heck up. The PG version. But he would, that was his, that was his solution for everything. I mean, he was in Vietnam and the Korean War. Put them on an island, just blow them the heck up. That'll take care of everything. But what is the real response for us? In, in the question of we, we have to clarify we by who is we that we're talking about? Because is it we, the people, the government of the United States? Is it we, the people of Conduit Church locally? Is it we, the body of Christ? Or is it just me pontificating some hypothetical we that we should, we should do this? And as I thought about it, I, I've, I was taken to Romans Chapter 13, when we speak of we, the government, and look, I'm, I am as frustrated and guilty of being angry and t- <coughs> tweeting nonsense uh, about our government as the next guy, but what God tells us in his word in Romans 13 is speaking of the government, hypothetically, uh, incidentally, parenthetically, he's actually speaking of the Roman government, not known for their human rights. Uh, record. He's speaking of that government saying, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you're doing wrong, he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There is a part of me that is not redeemed yet that wants to crank up the Toby Keith song and you know, put a boot in their derriere. And I think that that's a part of us that actually cries out for justice that is not a bad part of us. Because it's, as humans, you want, to, you want what's right. God wrote that on your hearts. And I would say, and I'm not looking, we don't have to have a Puritan debate over pacifism or whatever, I'm not. I think that the government is his agent of wrath in that there will be moments where that is happening and it is God's will where he is taking the hand of a king which is in, uh, the heart of a king which is in his hand. He says the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And for his purposes, sometimes uses nations to bring justice this side of heaven. And I think that our government has done that in the past and we could have a conversation of whether they've done it good or bad. But what Paul is saying is that we have to, we get to, take a step back in faith and say that if the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and if our God is truly infinite, that nothing is happening without his prior knowledge or permission, that he's setting it all up. Setting it all up for a big show. Ezekiel 38, it says, speaking of Gog and Magog, I'm gonna put a hook in your jaw and drag you down. Is Russia and Iran, the Persian and the Russian alliance, Gog and Magog? I don't know. But it is fascinating that for the first time that since I can remember that Russia and 
uh, Iran are actually working together inside of Syria together. I don't know if that's anything other than to say that when that happens, that it will be not Putin's choice or whoever's choice that's in charge. It's the Lord dragging him in. And so we can have a peace to say, okay, God's doing something here. And if God is out for our good, I can rest in that. I can look and say, this is really kind of freaking me out, but I know you have my best interests at heart. And, I, and, and God, I think, would say that, you know what, I can, I can work with that. I can work with that. that. I can bring you some peace in that. Trusting that. We, I've used this metaphor, and it just bears repeating. When, how many of you have got little kids you've strapped into a car seat before? Right? Where else in society can you tie a kid to a chair and leave him there? for like 12 hours. They wouldn't even let us do that in Guantanamo. But they'll put your child in there and we would go to like Minnesota. You know, you get to like Iowa and you're not almost there. And that baby in the back seat is like a little pterodactyl. <laughs> why, mama? Why, daddy? <laughs> if I could talk, I'd totally call the police on you. Like, Why? But you have no intention to harm that child, do you? No, it's the exact opposite. You're trying to keep them safe on a journey that you're taking them on. And the Lord is taking us all on a great journey. And it might feel a little uncomfortable right now. But we can scream and holler on this ride or we can just go to sleep and rest knowing that his will is, is for our good and for his glory. And so whatever the government does, we can say, let the government be the government and let the Lord use them and trust, trust that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So Romans 13 tells us what the government ought to do. But what about when I say we, the nation, we, the people? In 1 Peter chapter 2, there's another nation involved in this conversation. There's a nation that may not have a state capital or a flag. Actually, we do have some flags sometimes uh, when you, you've been to the church where they bring the flags around and dance. But... I digress. We may not have a, a capital here, but we have a church that is what Paul would call a holy nation. And he says in chapter 2, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good and you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. When the Bible speaks of you being the temple of the Holy Spirit, only one time in the New Testament does it use it as you individually, as a temple. Every other time it's you and I together coming together as a living stone. Coming together. So you and I, when we're together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'll be in the midst of you. You guys are that. We are that together. And he goes on to say in verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once we were not part of this nation, but we were adopted and we got our papers. We were immigrants that got our paperwork in this kingdom. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I are a holy nation. 
We are an occupying force. And the question is, that I would like to proffer an answer to this morning is not what should our government do or the French government should do. I would pray and, and ask that the Lord will intervene and, and knowing that he has this all under control. Jesus was not awoken in the night with a 3 a.m. phone call meant for Hillary. It was for Jesus. He wasn't awoken going, oh, I'm all freaked out. He knew before the foundations of the earth. He's totally fine. He's not freaked out even a little bit. But you and I, what do we do as a nation? The government's going to do their thing. What is, what is the church going to do? And I think that to, to really to answer that question requires us to have a really succinct, hopefully, hopefully, theology lesson out of Genesis chapter 3. So if you go there, you're just nervous I'm going to say Habakkuk at some point, aren't you? Relax. I'm, we're, just going, we're going to do the easy ones this morning. Because... In Genesis chapter 3, we see that what happened in France this week, what happened maybe in your childhood growing up, what happened in your marriage, what happened in your life, didn't start there. It started in the garden. And if you are a note taker, maybe you could draw four concentric circles on your, on your paper. Because I want to show you something that for me anyway, help me to really delineate what's happened in our world, what's happening in our world that doesn't just have to do with ISIS, but it has to do with your own lives as well. Everything fits under this, this original what happened in Genesis 3. Because in that moment in Genesis 3, man, when he decided today, I'm going to be my own God. I'll not have you to be the Lord over me. I am going to decide what is good and what is evil. You understand that's when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was him saying now, God, while I don't trust you, I want to tell you what's good and what's bad. And we talked about that last week of what God's goodness is. And God's goodness is not open for debate. It's not subjective. But Adam made it subjective and said, I'm going to be the one who's going to decide what is good and what is evil. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve, who walked with God face to face, hid themselves that day. Interesting to note that Adam didn't go looking for God, but God came looking from, for Adam. I don't know that it's so much that it's our sin that separates us from God, is it that we separate ourselves from him in our shame. But in that moment, there was an alienation. There was a cutting off of man from God. It's almost like, in, you know, uh, Ron Schweitzer has uh, fixed many of my uh, small engines that I continue to figure out ways to screw up. And he said that basically you just need, what, three things, clean oil, clean fuel, and clean air. And those basic things, clean, your, your small engine should run and should keep running. But when you put the wrong kind of fuel in, not that I would do that. I remember Ron calling me saying, I don't know what's in this gas tank, but it's not gas. Some sort of green, like, kryptonite nuclear fluid. I don't, we, I, honestly, I don't even know what it is. I'm still blaming it on my brother-in-law. But what happened was, it, it just gunks up the The engine doesn't work anymore. And at the core of humanity, 
at this moment where I'm deciding I'm going to rebel and be my own God, I will decide what is good and what is evil. I am gunking up my engine and separating myself from God, not him from me. Does this make sense? So at that moment, it's like dropping a stone in the water and now the ripples are starting to go out because not only was Adam separated from God, he moved on and became cut off from himself. Like a, if, if the first one is a spiritual isolation, a spiritual alienation, this would be a psychological alienation. Who told you you were naked, God would say to him in verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree? I mean, he's, he, inside of Adam, there's now an identity crisis. Anxiety and fear. <coughs> Depression and the, 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 what happened in the garden and becoming his own God, now he's cut off not only from God, but he's cut off from himself. The fear that makes me to not want to reach out to my wife over discomfort. The fear that drags me in anxiety and then I don't do the things God called me to do. It cuts me off psychologically and depression and those things that all started with a drop in the water that went from a separation, a spiritual separation is now a psychological separation. Adam didn't know who he was anymore. And Eve suddenly doesn't know who she is anymore. And part of the curse, it says that you're going to reach out for his position. Why is that? Because in the garden, when it was perfect, there was no separation between man and woman. They were, there was no way to know where one stopped and the other started. She didn't even have a name in the garden. It's not until the next chapter that they called her Eve. And one of the greatest struggles in marriage, which is what causes the next problem, is not just man from God and man from himself, but it's man from each other is Eve didn't even have a position anymore. She didn't know where she fit. And in marriage, isn't that one of the greatest, I don't, you know, I, we're having a miscommunication. We're, we're missing each other. And so it's man cut off from man. It's man cut off from God. And it's man cut off from himself. And when you start stepping into this social alienation, so in the center is, Spiritual alienation, the next circle out is a uh, psychological, and then the next circle would be a social alienation. I believe is where we get wars and rumors of wars and debates, and it's why Facebook can get so ugly, and it's why in our own societies we fight and we bicker and we gripe and we moan, because there's man being separated from man. In your marriage or in France, wherever, this is where that comes from. Started with one drop into the rock, into this, and the, the, the reciprocal, the, uh, the, the, the next water, the ripples of water, the effect, put us separated from each other. And not only was he separated from each other, but he was separated from his own nature around him. What was the, the punishment for him was that, in verse 15, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And he goes on to talk about that you're going to be cursed in verse 17. You shall, talking about working in the garden. Cursed is this ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. 
you become, nature itself becomes your enemy. Dirt. There was an old, I wish I could remember who wrote this. It was one of those, my mom used to keep the newspaper around and one of those, I think it was Irma Bombach. Does anybody know who that is? If you're 12, you don't. You can keep going on. But she ta- I remember a piece that Irma Bombach wrote when she talked about how dust was the enemy of every housewife. There's dust on the dishes, dust in the diapers. There's dirt on the floor. It's dirt. And then at the end of all your life, what do you get rewarded with? Six feet of dirt. And what she was really saying was, this is what God had said. She didn't know that's what she was saying, but all she was really was confirming what God said was, dirt is your enemy. But from this, creation itself is now going to be your enemy. And from this, we get famine and earthquakes and hurricanes and sickness and disease. The order before was God over man and man over nature. And what Adam did was reverse the order of God over nature and nature over man. And the world we live in now is full of famine and pestilence and disease because we're separated from nature. It's full of wars in your bedroom and wars in nations because man being separated from man. It's full of wars in your own heart. You're, what does the Bible say? That the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between the soul and the spirit, Hebrews 4.12. It speaks of that as a way, like sometimes I don't know where my soul starts and my spirit ends. The word of God, by the way, answers those questions, but it's your soul, your, your war with yourself. I'm not good enough. I'm not competent. If they figure out who I really am, they'll never, they'll all leave. You all leave this church. If you figure out who Darren really is, you'll all leave. And then my own war with God himself, that when I fall into sin, that my normal response isn't to run to the Father who's already looking for me, it's to run from him and to hide from him. Not knowing that what he did in his ripple effect, when he drops the stone of grace in that water of my soul, that at the very beginning in that heart, it says that I'm gonna put a new heart in you. You are a new creation. Behold, all things are become new in your life. And God doesn't create anything that he can't stop and say, that's good. And the gospel response fits so perfectly just in your spirit. But it didn't stop there. The ripples of water ripple outward to your soul. Have you ever heard of a peace that passes understanding that's what Philippians 4 promises us. He never, ever once said, I wanna, I'm going to give you a peace that will only come if you understand this. And thank God for that. Because there's a lot of things I don't understand. But he never promised me a peace that came from understanding. And if you're trying to say, oh, I'm going to understand this and then I'll have peace, you're just asking Jesus to keep a promise that he never made. So in your own heart, the gospel answers those questions of anxiety and fear that God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. The gospel answers that. Your spirit, by the way, is made new the moment that that rock drops in the water. And everything else we talk about is about transformation, the slow process of sanctification in your hearts. 
So your mind over years, I, I tell my kids this every, oh, it seems like all the time, but how many times do you think I get nervous before I preach on a Sunday? Every time. Every time. Because I'm allowing my soul to be redeemed and to be worked through, that the anxieties that started when someone else threw a rock in my pond and tried to cause these ripples of fear and rejection that the Holy Spirit can throw the rock the stone that the builder rejected, throw that into my pond and allow that to wash over my own soul and to take care of that. It answers that fear in my own heart and it allows, I can then allow it to then work into my relationships with each other, my relationships with my children, my relationship with you, my relationship with the people in Haiti, with the people in Syria, the people in France. Because the gospel, Jesus came not just to set it right in your soul and in your spirit, but in our lives, practically speaking. You're thinking, great, there's a great theology lesson, Darren, but how does this fit into what you're saying? And what should we be doing? How should we then live? As that rock, the, the, the ripples of the waves go out, it not only affects us in our own marriage and our own lives and our children and allowing us to have that, but then in that, the last ripples of it, if you will, when it's affecting us with famine and with disease. And in that social, by the way, is also in war. Every war, there are innocent people that are harmed. And what if the job of the government is to, to, to do these things and some of us are part of government, whether you're in the military or serving a government office, or you're, you're fulfilling a role that God has. But what if the role of the church is to let that last wave wash over of the gospel and we get to come in behind and clean up the mess that the government makes? What if that's our gig in Haiti is that the government has made an absolute farce of that nation? The poverty, the systemic corruption I can't change that, but Jesus never asked me to go into all the world and to change the culture. If anything, he seems to indicate that the culture would get worse. I'm going to be fighting a losing battle. No, in my nation, the gospel of the kingdom says, I get to be the hands and feet of Jesus, which, what does the hands and feet do? If your brain has an idea, my brain wanted some egg casserole this morning. Now, if that's it, my brain just does that, Darren doesn't get no egg casserole, which by the way, I did not because my mouth was too busy running. I had to get up here, <laughs> but that's what your hands and feet were for, right? Did you, did you have breakfast this morning? You, did you, you didn't, so you guess, okay, I'm, sorry, I'm trying to, who had breakfast this morning? Did you? You did? Okay. So what did you, what did you have in your mind for breakfast? Toast. Did you go and make toast? Who, how did you do that? With your, with your head? <laughs> no, your hands and your feet. The ideas of Jesus are to bring kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. He talks over and over again how we can love our enemies, how we can be kind to one another. Kindness is the calling card of God. If goodness is what he looks like, kindness is what he acts like. And for us in Jesus, we get to let the gospel change our hearts, change our souls, change our lives, and then ripple outward to change each other. 
And I've asked David to come and share just briefly. He just got back with yet another team from Haiti. Because as a church, what I hope for us to be is to be individual. Let those waves of kindness wash over the people here locally and the people globally as well. And so David just got back. He's fighting a, a pretty significant head cold on some sort of cold medicine, so it could be good. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying, I don't know if Darren's going to let me talk, so bear with me. <clears throat> if you're slurring your words, you know, it, uh, the hot toddy worked. It has been a, uh, it's been a long week. It's been a long year. And uh, that's, how I, that's how I feel this morning. It's uh, November, and we're kind of winding things down. This is the last team to go out this year. And it's been a long year. I don't know if you guys uh, can relate to that or not. But uh, I just ask you to bear with me this morning. <clears throat> it's been a long year because I'm tired. A good tired, though. I wouldn't change it for anything. I'm just worn out. But I'm worn out, the kind of worn out that you get from just doing. And by the way, I love the hands and feet. Well played, monsieur. <laughs> a little hat tip to some really good friends of ours uh, who work in the same area. <clears throat> have an organization, an orphanage actually called Hands and Feet. Um, so I was in uh, Haiti for a little longer than usual this way. We had a team there for a week and, uh, and I was there for 10 days. I stayed on afterwards. Darren was there for some of it and got to uh, hang out with a good pastor buddy of his and that he hadn't got to see in a while. And it was just a great team. It was a really uh, laid back kind of feeling and I was just thinking every day, this is the perfect uh, like November team I need to kind of be landing that plane at the end of the year because it's just been a long year. <clears throat> and uh, after Darren left and then uh, after the team actually left, uh, the first day we had some donors who were coming down for a, a kind of a private uh, viewing or I don't, I don't know what, to, a little tour of everything that they had been supporting. And so, uh, so that morning, uh, I don't know, has anybody in here ever been camping? Anybody ever been camping? Anybody ever slept in a, in a uh, 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 like a campground? Or even if you just sleep somewhere in the summer where your, your, your windows are open. Uh, so that's the way Haiti is. It's, it's kind of a community. We're in this hotel. It's kind of up on a hill, and it overlooks just this really uh, incredible little town. But there, there pretty much aren't any windows or doors or anything that seals. So it's, it's kind of like sleeping in a campground. You can hear somebody cough two streets over or whatever. So at 4 in the morning, uh, that morning, I was just awakened by blood-curling, terrorizing, wailing, uh, and screaming. And, uh, and it, it grew from one person to uh, a whole crowd of people, and I knew instantly that someone had died. And it, uh, it turns out that it was a family that's, their house uh, is right directly to the back of the hotel. And so when you spend time there, and when you spend time on the rooftop of this hotel, it uh, overlooking, you kind of get to know some of these people around there. So I've waved at this family a thousand times. I just interacted with them the day before, even though we didn't exchange words. But on a very human level, like we exchanged glances and smiles and waves. And so my heart went out for them. My heart was broken instantly because I knew that this was, this was just hard. And it struck me immediately that the reason why this was so hard was because there was no, there was no hope. There was zero hope. It was the kind of terror. I've, uh, you know, I'm 41 now, and when you get to my age, you've experienced death a couple times, is touched in different places, and so um, 
you know, and death is never easy, but when you, when you experience that kind of wailing that I just cannot describe, the absolute absence of hope. And then we came back uh, Friday, I literally landed in the airport in the middle of this breaking news of everything happening in uh, Paris. And, um, you know, when you're in an airport and news like that is breaking or whatever, things are definitely a buzz. There's a absolute uh, kind of atmosphere of panic and worry uh, and fear. And I could just feel the fear gripping everybody. And I was just struck particularly because uh, you know, I'm worn out because, uh, because it's been a good year, because there's a lot of stuff happening. And you know, uh, even though that morning when I awoke to the sounds of wailing and, and just felt the absolute absence of hope, I was immediately comforted by scripture. The Holy Spirit brought a scripture to me immediately. And it was Romans 12:15. rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Because that day I had a wedding to go to and it was a wedding uh, for a guy who's a really close friend, a guy who's been an indescribable help uh, to our ministry and to the community there, a guy who uh, just deserved to have the best, best day. It was my first Haitian wedding, and it was fantastically weird. Uh, it was different. Uh, <laughs> it was very odd, and, uh, but I loved it. And I literally went from one scenario to the next, like a morning with this family, and my heart was just, you know, ripped out for them and wishing that I could communicate better and all of that. But I knew I couldn't. And, but I went to this wedding, and, and I was able to rejoice with my friends, and I was able to celebrate this new chapter in uh, Jean-Marie and Yves Rose's life. You know, in this week, we, just in this week, we had a key ceremony dedicated to house... Uh, for people who used to shove together mattresses to sleep on them. And some donors came and they, they donated some money and that money went through Conduit Mission and, and these people have a house now. Jean-Marie and Eve Rose's wedding was a big deal in the community. It was, it was pretty huge for their community. There were a lot of people there because of, uh, you know, the position that Jean-Marie's kind of risen up to and where the Lord's brought him. A lot of people know him now. Uh, and it was a big deal. But this is in a community where 10 years ago, weddings didn't really happen, like at all because frankly, there was really no need for them. So, so the ceremony itself was a big deal. It was a win for the kingdom of God. We fed hundreds of kids uh, in the feeding program every day, and what I'm noticing now is these kids are getting so healthy that I saw two things that were the big difference. I saw sharing, and I saw leftovers. There was a bucket uh, where they brought, uh, where they come to clean their dishes out or whatever, and they scoop off uh, what the kids didn't finish to eat. And that bucket had to be emptied a couple times. It went to uh, some animals. Leftovers is a big deal in the kingdom of God, guys. Yeah. <laughs> in a kingdom, uh, in a place like Haiti, uh, that's a win for the kingdom of God. That's not how it used to be. It's it's not at all. And, and I'm sorry. I know I'm running along. I swear it's medicine. Please, I'll do better second. I promise. Um, let me land this whole plane. I want you guys to know. Even coming back into that, even there being, I mean, landing literally as news is breaking in the airport, all they play is CNN, and so this is just everywhere. It was bombarded, and I want you to know that because of what I know, because of what I do, this is the difference. I don't want us to think, I don't want us to hold on to the idea that hope is on the rise, because that's not true. Hope is already established. Hope is already here. 
We're latching on to something that's already winning. Jesus wept with those who wept, and he rejoiced with those who rejoiced, but he was never on the defensive. He was never on the, he, he never fretted. And that's where we are, guys. And I want you guys to know, the only reason I asked Darren if I could share some of from the trip this morning, I want you guys to know these things are already happening. The kingdom of God isn't advancing in a battle where we're behind, so yay, we're finally, you know, breaking ground or we're finally catching up. God is working. There is hope. And our lives don't have to resemble the lack of hope. And so I want, I want to share with you guys this morning, I want you guys to know these are the things that are all, already going on. Thank you, David. That's it. Give him a hand, would you? It's good. Yeah. Because what David, the reason I was excited to let him share that this morning is what I wanted, what are we going to do? Like, how, do, how should we then live? We're about to wrap up another year of Conduit where somewhere around 200,000 plus is going to have gone through our coffers into the front lines of the kingdom, building orphanages and buying trucks for missionaries and doing amazing things in the kingdom. But how should we live right now today? He says in Second, uh, 1 Peter 2, in verse 11, and think of it right now, and this is the age where Peter was writing to a people that were, their, their worlds resembled more of Iraq than they resemble us. And he said to them, beloved, my, my friends, I urge you, I'm begging you, as sojourners and exiles, this world is not our home. We are sojourners and we are exiles. We are on our way to a kingdom that is going to be a new heaven, a new earth. <clears throat> We're not just going to be floating around in the clouds. He's building a new thing for us. But meanwhile, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war, wage war against your soul. There's a reason why we live differently. There's a reason why the world might say, you can marry whoever you want to marry, whenever you want to marry, however you want to marry, as many times as you want to marry. And he says, I, I'm begging you, don't do that. Live differently. Live in the perfection and the wholeness of God, the completion, the goodness that he talked, we talked about last week. God's goodness. And in verse 12, he says, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's specifically writing to the Jewish Christians, but to us, by the way, if you're uh, not uh, Jewish, you are a Gentile. We're all, we all as Gentiles that aren't Jewish in, in their culture. But he says, for you guys, Gentiles, live among them as honorable. Live among your Facebook feed as honorable. Live among your neighbors as honorable. Live amongst your school and your coworkers as honorable. So that when they speak against you as evil doers, which they did against Jesus, didn't they? Jesus, who didn't do anything wrong, he knew no sin. He had never sinned. They spoke of him evil. So we ought not to be surprised when they speak of us as evil. When they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That there's coming a time for every person in our world around us where Jesus continues to visit with them. We've heard stories from Mark and Dana in Morocco of visions of Jesus appearing to them. 
We've heard stories from Togo, Uganda, from America of God visiting people. But as we live honorably amongst our friends and our neighbors, we become the best chick track the world could have ever written. Do you remember the chick tracks? Well, come on, raise your hand. Does anybody remember those? Oh, man, only three of us? Oh, wow. They were like scary, creepy Jesus tracks. You'd find them in bathrooms. And it was, the entire purpose was like a cartoon to scare the bejesus out of you so that you'd get saved. You can go home and Google them. I said, they probably still make them. But that's what Jesus has called us to do. Romans 2 tells us is that it was not his scary, creepy trick track that led them to repentance. It's his kindness that leads them, leads me to repentance. I have never once had someone argue with me and yell at me and belligerently belittle and condescend me that it changed my mind. And if you have, congratulations, I just haven't had that happen. What I have had is someone coming to me in conversation and in love and earning the right to be heard in my life because they were kind to me and slowly the Holy Spirit changed my heart and my life. As a church, as individuals, man, could we go this week and be kind to one another. To let the spirit, because let me tell you, most times when I'm rising up on somebody, it's because that ripple of man separated from man and me even separated from myself, I'm feeling insecure and I'm feeling like re- I don't want to be rejected, so I'll reject you first. And then, we, you know, let the gospel begin to wash over that part of our hearts. Let the gospel wash over the part that wants to separate me from you and you from me from each other and let that fear be washed in the gospel that we can then reach out and be the hands and the feet of Jesus in kindness to each other, to the community in front of us, to the world around us, not just with our money, but with our, with our lives. And I'm looking around this room and I see a room full of you guys that are doing that already. I don't mean this as an admonishment, this is an encouragement. Keep on doing that. Keep allowing your good works to silence the talk of foolish men. And in doing so, we tell the love story of Jesus. And when you go home later today, I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapter 9. We don't have time to go there, but David, after he had def- Saul had been killed and his whole country had been, and it was all at his disposal. Now David said to, to his servant, Go, is there anybody left from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan, who is Saul's son and was David's best friend? Is there anybody I can show kindness to? Find him, and what did he do? He went and found a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. <laughs> Sounds like you have cold medicine when you're saying his name. You just had a root canal. <laughs> and when they found Mephibosheth, they found him in a place called Lodibar. And at Lodibar was this place, it was just this barren place. He was hiding because when the kings would take over a nation, what they knew, if you were a relative of the other king or an heir to the throne, you would go and hide because you would be killed. And so Mephibosheth was hiding. And not only was he hiding, he was paralyzed. Apparently from the waist down, there's a story of when he was being rescued by a nanny and she grabbed him and apparently dropped, she dropped him and apparently severed his spinal cord. We don't know. But what we know is he couldn't walk anymore. 
And what did God do to, in this picture for you and I? What did David do? He said, no, no, bring him in. I'm going to restore all of it to Mephibosheth. Come sit at my table, at the king's table. I'm restoring all of the land that was taken from you. I'm restoring back to you. And Mephibosheth, who was lame and was dirty and wasn't worthy, was brought into the king's room and given the kindness of a king. And for you and for I, the Lord has sought through the ages and the millennia looking for, is there anybody that I can show kindness to on behalf of my son who gave his life? You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's the, that's the point. It's why it's called grace. It wasn't something you earned. It was what you were given. He was being kind to you. And every time we're being kind to someone else who didn't deserve it, what we are doing is telling the story of grace. We're telling the story of Jesus, even when we don't know it. You remember the story of Over Nelson, the voodoo priest, who for years and years pillaged and stole from the people of Jacques Malhady, and he finally came to Jesus in his older years, and he came to Jesus because he said, I've just watched how you guys have taken care of my kids better than I do. He had had multiple children from multiple women, and when he finally burned his voodoo stuff and shut down his temple, he said it was because you guys were so kind. It was his kindness that led Over to repentance. Over is now buried in a crypt on his land. He died and, and went home to be with Jesus just last year because of kindness. You guys, can we go be kind to one another this week and tell the love story of Jesus in that way? Conduit isn't about money. Money just gets washed out of us when the Holy Spirit comes through. The, con the conduit is about us being a, a, the water, the rivers of living water flowing through us to others. And what would be the presence and the purpose and the proof of the Holy Spirit? Not that I could speak in tongues. The proof of the Holy Spirit, the proof of the tree, the fruit of the tree is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit is love. And part of love, the way that love acts is kind. Let's pray. Father, would you give us wisdom? Actually, would you stand to your feet and just focus specifically on yourself this morning, how you could be kind. And Lord, we just ask for us, give us creative ideas and how we can be kind this week, Lord. Lord, forgive me for acting out of fear and not out of faith. And yet I stand today as I'm moving into this new thing saying I want to be kind to one another. And in being kind, Lord, today to people who don't deserve it, didn't earn it, I get to tell the story of Mephibosheth. I get to tell the story of you. I get to tell the story of grace. <sighs> Let's breathe that in today, Lord, and just move and give us the power. You didn't just give us the power to be forgiven from sin. You're giving us the power to move and to not even be sin conscious, but to move and be Holy Spirit conscious this week. And let those good things rise up and tell the story and silence the talk of foolish men. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Continue to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Darkness is on the rise, but it's only because God is on the move. You guys remember Aslan? Aslan is on the move. Be blessed. <laughs>